Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, and welcome back to the Spiked Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers, and with me in the studio this week, we have Spiked editor Tom Slater. Hello. And writer and trade unionist Paul Embry. Hello. Coming up on today's show, the vapid virtue signalling of Jordan Henderson, how the UK's energy bill could turn us all into climate criminals, and the brutal cancellation of Rasheen Murphy. Now, to make sure you never miss an episode of this podcast, if you're listening to us on Apple or Spotify, be sure to subscribe to the show. And if you're watching us on YouTube, then not only should you subscribe to the channel, you should also click the bell so you never miss any exciting brand new spiked content. So Jordan Henderson, the England midfielder, former Liverpool captain, has finally broken his silence uh, several months after he agreed to sign up to play uh, football in Saudi Arabia. Now, this has become slightly more controversial than usual because Henderson has tried to present himself as an LGBTQ ally. Um, So people are understandably quite angry that he's gone to play um, and is taking a lot of money from the Saudi state, a famously homophobic uh, regime. Tom, what have you made of this? It does feel like the Saudi Pro League, a bit like the Qatar World Cup before it, is mm. where all this sports virtue signalling goes to die. It's like it's a point at which various footballers who have been taking the knee, wearing the rainbow laces, wearing the One Love armband or whatever it was called, finally when it would actually cost them to do so, mm. either because they wouldn't be able to take a very lucrative deal at a Saudi team or because they might get sent off if they wore the armband at the World Cup, They just folded instantly. And I think what it's really underlined is the fact that this virtue signaling politics, which is washed over celebrity culture, which is washed over sporting life, um, which even the corporate world feels constantly in the need to engage with, the only reason they do so is because they see only benefits and zero costs. They're taking positions which in many cases have been mainstream within the West for quite some time, aren't dangerous in the slightest or not exclusively. Um, and then whenever they're operating in a society, in a country, in a market where that kind of thing isn't welcome, suddenly the rainbow flags get quietly packed away. In a way, I feel almost sorry for Jordan Henderson in the midst of all of this because, you know, he's obviously got it in his head at one point or he's been given a certain level of PR advice that this is what one has to do in order to be a prominent footballer in the 21st century. But you can't help but marvel at the hypocrisy when you've got him, as he did in his interview with The Athletic, which has been doing the rounds, stress that he should almost be cut some slack because he's gone the he's, t- he's done the hard yards he's yeah. gone above and beyond in his words because he's worn the armband and worn the laces that is what politics is to some people mm. these days but it's just like the rug has been pulled out from under him i guess N- not undeservedly he's been called up for this definitely yeah i mean paul it's it's the shallowness i guess that's most striking here isn't it yeah, and, you know, Jordan Henderson, um, with all due respect to him, I think his hypocrisy has been exposed. Mm. Um, but that said, I do have some sympathy, and Tom touched on it, I do have some sympathy for these footballers, notwithstanding the huge amounts of money that they earn, the great lifestyles that they have. Um, because the truth is, such is the nature now um, of this kind of relentless moral lecture that yeah. we all experience and which has been 
um, which has captured many of our institutions, our corporations, our football clubs and whatever. I, I think many footballers just feel browbeaten into going along with it. They don't necessarily agree with it inwardly, but because it's kind of demanded of them and it's expected of them, and they're kind of told if you don't go along with it, then you're going to be some sort of pariah within the game and beyond, effectively. That a lot of them, I think, just for the sake of an easy life, just say, okay, you know, yeah. they probably are privately pro LGBT rights, not yeah. in a massive way, but feel they have to kind of flaunt it in a massive way. Mm. Um, because if they don't, there'll be a backlash. Um, and when you actually, you know, when you see them sometimes under the glare of the spotlight, when there is um, a controversy, I mean, as there was at the World Cup where they weren't allowed to wear the armbands and the England players said, well, Harry Kane, you know, we don't want him to get booked if he wears the armband, so he's not going to get booked. And then they go to Saudi Arabia and and, and lots of money. Um, you can see they're not used to the sort of forensic questioning that then ensues yeah. because they haven't really thought about it, because they haven't really, it's not really their idea. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. been foisted on them. So when they are called upon to defend it, they're not actually very good at it. Um, and, you know, I, I contrast it to um, a footballer, I think he plays for Everton now, but he was playing in the French League a couple of seasons ago, Idrissa Gay. Yeah. Um, and he took the decision not to wear a shirt which was emblazoned with the LGBT rain, rainbow flag. And he did it for religious reasons. And he didn't make a song and dance about it. He didn't make a big thing. It was just a quiet act of conscience. Um, and he was absolutely hounded yeah. over it. I mean, he, he, the French football authorities got onto him and the media got onto him. And, and he was almost driven out of the game because of it. So I kind of feel, look, stop stop the moral lecture. I want to get off. Yeah. You know? And especially when it comes to football, people just want to go along. They want to enjoy the game. Players want to play. Fans want to watch it without all of the kind of vote, uh, the, the, the woke virtue signaling that we're constantly subjected to. And Tom, doesn't this also reveal that really, you know, this is about lecturing the fans, mm-hmm. not really the powers that be, you know, because you know, we don't have a homophobic state in Britain. There aren't any laws to change. But I imagine many football players and the footballing authorities think that there are fans out there whose attitudes need mm-hmm. to change. I think so. I think that's one of the depressing things about this new generation of woke footballers, whether or not they really mean it or really understand it or not is there's been this long-running attempt by politicians, by various campaign groups to kind of use football. There's this idea this is a, this is the nation's sport, this is something that can connect with ordinary people in a way that we can't, and this is a means through which we can correct their horrendous, as they would see it, thoughts, this presumption that the person who goes to a football match is basically an unreconstructed bigot who needs, at the very least, etiquette lessons and some potentially kind of re-educating into what it is to be a nice, kind and liberal person. Um, what's really depressing is that you're seeing even football is really, for lack of a better phrase, playing ball with that now, yeah. stepping into that role either as a moral exemplar themselves or as a kind of re-educator in chief. And that's something which has been really depressing because, again, whether they realise it or not, the dynamic here is that there is this presumption amongst the great and good that your average football fan is dreadful and therefore they need to be kind of pulled up on it. And it's one of those things where as well, you can kind of feel like you're talking across purposes in this discussion because people say, oh, you you decrying this virtue signaling is it so wrong to be virtuous and i think it's one of those things where people you kind of average guardian isa don't understand how irritating this yeah. stuff is firstly because the thing about virtue signaling is it, it it assumes that the people you're signaling at aren't virtuous it yeah. assumes that they don't have all of the enlightened opinions that you do it assumes that they hold prejudices that they almost certainly don't so that's one thing that really irritates people oh they're making an anti-racist gesture why are you upset by it because they're assuming i'm a racist that's yeah. why they get upset by it Similarly, I think that what's been revealed by the Jordan Henderson thing is that it is just signalling. 
Hmm. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't change anything. There's no real campaign going on here. It's preening yourself on yeah. social media or on a football pitch for 30 seconds before kickoff. It means absolutely nothing. If anything, when there actually is a test, like do you want to go and play in Saudi Arabia or not, these players can quite often fail that. At the end of the day, he's a professional footballer. He's yeah. not a human rights activist, um, he, as much as he and his PR team might like to pretend that he actually is. But I think at least he's got to recognise that if you present yourself in that way, then you can't be surprised when people call you up for not meeting the supposedly lofty standards that you've set for yourself. In that yeah. Respect. And and Paul, sort of leaving aside the sort of hypocrisy of the players, you know, do you think that it can be corrosive to the game, um, the introduction of sort of Saudi Arabian money? I mean, we've seen Saudi Arabia buy football clubs in the UK, as well as nabbing top European players. We've seen Qatar buy football clubs in, in the UK, as well as sort of hosting the World Cup. What effect do you think that has on sport? Doesn't it take it even further away from, I mean, not that football is a grassroots game anymore and hasn't been so, for some time, but it feels like it takes it even further away from the communities it wants represented. I, I think that's absolutely true. Um, I'm a I'm a Wolves fan for my sins. We've got Chinese owners. Um, there's all kind of kinds of questions raging around the club at the moment as to just how committed they are to the club, whether they, they see it just as an opportunity to make a fast buck and then sell it on when they don't need it anymore. It certainly does kind of wrench the club when you have these sort of multi-millionaire foreign owners who come in and take the club over. It sort of wrenches the club from its from its moorings, from yeah. its kind of social and, and cultural moorings. That said, I have to say, if you said to me as a Wolves fan, or I guess if you said to a Newcastle fan, so you don't want this money then? Yeah. I suppose most people probably go, actually, we're, we're quite happy with the money because we're getting lots of good players and um, you know we're, we're, we're doing quite well, better than we would have done. Without the money, I do think we need to ask a question: Why do we expect football and footballers mm. to take this kind of high moral stance mm. over this issue when you know our government and our companies are trading with Saudi Arabia day in day out, yeah. doing arms deals? And when you know the king died a few years ago, Buckingham Palace had the flag at half mast and that kind of thing. So, I do think there's a certain unfairness to say, but we expect our footballers. Um, to to be paragons of virtue mm. when it comes to this, but you know, some guy who's who's working in the city and he's trading with the Saudis or the Middle East or whatever, no, that's absolutely fine. Yeah, it's perfectly perfectly legal. There's a, there's a stench of hypocrisy. Or the Prince Charles will have the shakes on the royal yacht, so they can yeah. Yeah, do, do Prince nice Charles alarm. often has the shakes on the royal yacht. <laughs> so do, do a nice little arms deal on on, on the yeah. side or whatever. Yeah, Tom, what, what do you make of that side of it? Because it is, it it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be down to Jordan Henderson's. <laughs> no, not, not, not at all. And I think I think the, the simple solution here is that you shouldn't force politics into all areas of life. This is mm. not something which these players got together and thought, we really need to make a stand about this. You know, this is something which they were responding to a broader cultural mood in which absolutely everything was being politicised. And yeah. every sporting institution in which every cultural institution was browbeaten and told you have to make a stand and mouth the correct opinions i think we just need to get back to a situation where that expectation has disappeared if mm. players want to in their own time or you know even using their public profile to say or think it to that's absolutely fine but this vapid empty virtue signaling just needs to go because it's intolerant in its own way it's also i think it doesn't serve the players well at all and i think we've seen that the, the politicization is, is, is absolutely true i mean it, it is now i think in fact in every area of our public life and uh, much of, of our private life as well. I mean, if you look at the, I think it was the New Year's Eve just gone, um, the fireworks mm. in London, which yeah. is a big occasion. Families go along and people have a few drinks and the fireworks are uh, quite spectacular. Um, and on this occasion, uh, they had the 
the Ukraine flag and they had the LGBT flag. And there's just it's just one example of where, you know, there is no area of yeah. activity, um, of entertainment, of culture, of the arts or whatever, sport, where it's just free, you know, yeah. just just for a couple of hours to say, actually, <laughs> just forget that and let's just concentrate on what we're here for. And that, I think, is like a never-ending treadmill and it's getting worse, to be blunt. And, and it feels like it's bad for politics and it's bad mm. for the things that it's colonising as far as you do mean, it does mean that you're not safe from politics almost in any area of life. But it also means that politics has been turned into just virtue signaling. It is just the empty slogan. Yeah. Now. It is the poorly thought out but nice sounding soundbite rather than anything of any substance. So I feel like it's not only is it diminishing things like sport, it's diminishing politics as well in a strange sort of way. So again, just be done with it and let's be a bit more serious about this thing. So the UK's new energy bill, which is currently passing through Parliament, allows for the creation of criminal offences uh, for a failure essentially to be energy efficient. So people are worried that possibly homeowners, business owners, landlords, etc., could be fined up to £15,000 and perhaps even jailed for a year for a failure to have the right energy efficiency standards in their property. Now, Tom, the, the government is saying it has no plans to use these powers, but still the direction of travel that this reveals is very worrying, isn't it? It is, and I think we've been heading in this direction for a long time. I mean, if anyone thinks that this is entirely new ground, hasn't really been paying attention as far as finding people for their supposedly sinful environmental ways has been around for quite a long time. I mean, if you think about you, Leslie's predecessors, if you think mm. about any of the new schemes that are kind of coming in, even reports years ago about people being fined for not recycling and so on, like there's been this petty authoritarianism which has come along with the climate movement for quite a while. And I think the other thing that we're seeing is because one... Two things have always been true in the climate discussion. One of which is you ask people in general, are you concerned about the environment? And they'll say yes, as most people would. Yeah. But as soon as you say, should your lives get worse in order to meet these lofty climate goals, which have been set from on high, should you have to pay for it? Should people mm. have, like you have to put up with more expensive energy bills, with a less comfortable, less convenient life? People, understandably, I think, say no. Because the whole deal in politics is that you vote for political parties that will make your lives better. You expect your children's lives to be better than your lives. It kind of breaks that whole contract in a very meaningful sense. And so what we're, we're seeing more explicitly is the environmental movement can't really convince people to have to put up with less. Yeah. So they're going to have to compel. They're going to have to force. And I think this is, as you say, we shouldn't be getting carried away and suggesting that, again, people are having their collars felt for turning the heating up too high or anything like that. But as you say, the direction of travel is pretty clear. And I think it all comes back to that simple point, which is that people are simply not convinced that their their lives should get worse yeah. in an attempt to meet climate targets, which even if they were completely successful on their own terms, if you think about the size of Britain and the rest of the world and so on, would have absolutely zero difference on the picture in general. So I think that's just the rubber's hitting the road now. Yeah. That is concerned, I guess. And it, it is worth restating that, you know, the Public Accounts Committee um, has said in, in Parliament that over 60% of all the uh, emissions cuts in the UK to reach net zero will come from behaviour change, not from new technologies. So, you know, there are all kinds of problems with wind farms and solar panels, but even if you put those aside, net zero does not mean shiny new solar panels appearing everywhere, new nuclear power stations, you know, it doesn't just mean that. It means your life is going to have to change. Your behavior is going to have to change. And as this bill suggests, if you don't do it voluntarily, you'll be pushed. But what do you make of that aspect of it? 
I, I, I think it's part of what I think is a, a worrying trend um, across, certainly in Britain and to a certain degree America as well, as we see, in, which is that we, we, we're seeing political differences um, and particularly certain people looking at political opponents as, as near criminals yeah. almost, that instead of, as once upon a time I think we did, you know, articulating those differences and having a proper Barney about them and having a, you know, discussion and protesting if you wanted to protest and whatever. Nowadays, it seems that some people think because you don't hold the same opinion as me, you know, on net zero or whatever, and because that opinion is so clearly morally virtuous Mm. um, and these people are full of their own kind of moral rectitude that they can't, they can't comprehend that somebody else might not share that opinion. Yeah. And if they don't share that opinion, um, then somehow they're morally inferior and they're, they're bordering, bordering on criminal. Um, and I think we saw that a little bit with, with Brexit and the fallout from that, where you saw some people on the Remain side of the argument actively and publicly saying that politicians and campaigners on the Leave side should be locked up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, We did see people arguing, articulating that seriously. They should be locked up for their lives. Um, we're seeing the thing with Trump in America at the moment. I mean, I'm certainly not a fan of, of Donald Trump at all. I'm distinctly wary um, about what's going on and the fact that somebody who clearly has a degree of popularity, um, somebody who's planning to run for president again, could find himself in the inside of a, of a prison cell by political opponents, I think many of whom clearly are politically motivated. I mean, that said, Trump doesn't really help him help himself because it was <laughs> it was it was it was he of course who was saying about Hillary Clinton lock her up and mm. stuff like that. So so he as an individual probably can't complain very much about that. Um, but I I do think that this tendency to say that you know you must be bordering on criminal because you don't agree with me is is something that's escalating a little bit within society. I think there's much broader questions actually um, about energy security. We could debate that all night. How how we uh, as an advanced Western nation, simply do not have energy independence. We don't yeah. have energy security. Um, our, our energy supply is an absolute shambles, um, frankly. Um, and what we're going to achieve in terms of net zero, when you look at the carbon emissions of places like China and, and the US, you, you have to conclude, I certainly have to conclude, that what we're demanding really amounts to, to no more than posturing, because in terms of actual effect, mm. um, it's clearly going to be minimal. Um, but nonetheless, it seems to me it's about politicians being able to preen and posture on the world stage mm-hmm. and saying, look what we've achieved, yeah. even though it's possibly going to impoverish millions of people. So that debate needs to, to be had as well within this this, this context, sure. Yeah, the, the posturing is interesting because the politicians are quite open about that. They say Britain must be a world leader mm. in net zero. We'll make the sacrifices. Others will see how brilliant it is and, and, and will step into line. Um, so do you think the sort of apocalypticism of climate change... Mm. Um, the climate movement has a role to play in here because, you know, obviously if you do think that people are literally killing the planet Mm -hmm. um, by leaving the heating on a bit too long or, you know, uh, having washing their clothes too too many times, Mm -hmm. then presumably you do think, well, yeah, why not put them in prison? And what I think is interesting about the public bristling against these kinds of policies, whether you see that in relation to new layers, whether you see that in relation to kind of polling on net zero in general, I think it's shown that people don't buy the apocalypticism. Mm. If the public bought the extreme rhetoric that you get out of places like the UN, we're talking about whether it's global boiling or code red for humanity, you know, the rhetoric getting almost absurdly 
apocalyptic, as you say, because mm. they feel like the plebs just aren't listening. So we've got to keep, for lack of a better phrase, turning up the temperature. Um, people obviously don't buy it. Because if you believed this, as your average just a boiler extinction rebellion person was, you would be turning your heating off and gluing yourself to the tarmac. Yeah. People don't believe it. People don't buy it. It's not to say they're not concerned about climate change or they don't think if you know we should be make sure that our again energy policy is not wantonly polluting or whatever. Yeah. It's just to say they clearly do not buy the thing that's been sold to them. They've intuited quite rightly that this is become a bizarre preoccupation of a political elite, particularly on the global stage which really sees this more as a moral mission, more than a kind of clear-cut, technical, practical problem to be overcome. And I think on Paul's point as well, the, the preening and the posturing aspects of it is so interesting because it's just another example, as you get on so many other issues, in which politicians seem to derive so much of their authority, their worth, from going to some kind of international conference and being applauded yeah. rather than serving the people who elected them well. Hmm. This is such a great example of it because what the policies that they're imposing on people will make their lives worse, will make things more expensive, will make things harder for them. And they're just saying they've got to suck it up because I've got to look good at COP29 or whatever it is yeah. it's going to be next year. I mean, it's a really fascinating example of how on this issue, but not exclusively on this issue, they've just become detached from what we used to call the kind of bread and butter concerns of the electorate, of keeping the lights on, of all these sorts of things that used to be so basic have almost become up for negotiation in the midst of all of this. And I do think the other thing that it shows is that in the whole discussion around energy, we used to take as given that things like energy security, keeping the lights on, making sure that people can continue to enjoy increasingly plush lives as much as is possible, was the goal. Yeah. That's changed now <laughs> in a very drastic way. The goal is conserving this abstract thing called the planet. And regardless of what other countries are doing, we just have to go along with it. And whether or not you're going to have to put up with being colder and poorer, that's just how it goes. So I think it's a, it's a reminder of how much, because of environmentalism has become such a kind of ruling class ideology, kind of guiding ethic of theirs, it's um, upturned what we all thought the deal was to yeah. us and our politicians in quite a meaningful sense. And finally, um, let's talk about Rasheen Murphy, the singer-songwriter, former frontwoman of Maloko, if people remember that, or them from the 90s. Uh, she recently posted on a private Facebook post about puberty blockers. She said that they were fucked, absolutely desolate and dangerous to uh, vulnerable children. And for this, essentially, her record label have... Uh, reportedly stopped promoting her album. She's had gigs cancelled and, of course, she's had the usual torrents of online abuse, as we've now come to expect. Paul, this seems like a particularly cruel example of uh, cancel culture. I mean, it's going to be very difficult for people to deny that that is a problem now, I think. Well, I, I, I thought the people who protest against the likes of Murphy were actually against conversion therapy but it seems that they're actually in favor when it comes to the ideology and, <laughs> and thought crime it seems they're in favor of conversion therapy they they see that as far as they're concerned she has blasphemed yeah and it cannot stand and something has to be done and she has to be hounded and she has to be browbeaten into apologizing and donning sackcloth and ashes and um, you know, recognizing her faults and taking a vow of silence or whatever it is, you know, she's she's promised to do. And you know, I I, I really despair because I I long for the day where somebody says something like Murphy says, which seems to be quite sensible as yeah. far as I was concerned. All right, it was pretty fruity language, but yeah. you know, quite sensible. And then when the the storm 
of abuse comes from a, albeit, you know, a small minority, but nonetheless, a storm of abuse. They say, do you know what? I couldn't care less. Yeah. I'm not going to apologize. Yeah. I'm not going to back down. I believe in what I said. I'm going to stand by it and I'm prepared to take on all comers. So, you know, suck that up basically. Yeah. Um, and nobody really does. And I think if somebody did do that, they would garner a lot of respect from, you know, mainstream society out there, most most of which is not on board with some of this kind of crackpot stuff. Uh, and the other thing I would say is, look, an apology is never good enough for these people. Yeah. You know, it's a little bit of red meat to them, mm -hmm. but they want more and they will always come back for more and more and more. No matter what you say, no matter what you do, no matter how much you kind of prostrate yourself before them. It isn't going to be good enough for them. So, you know, we need to to try to encourage people to stop being petrified and to stop bowing down every time they get a little bit of pressure because there is a lot of cowardice out there, to be perfectly honest. And we do need people with backbone who are prepared to stand up to this stuff because they wouldn't be, if they did, they would find very quickly, I think, that they're not in a minority yet amongst mm -hmm. mainstream society, that the majority are with them. Um, and, you know, we need a little bit of courage from the likes of Murphy and others who find themselves in that sort of position. And I think your sort of red meat or whether you, or maybe red rag to a bull, that kind of metaphor is really apt because a lot of the worst has happened to Murphy after she apologised. Now, you don't, you know, I, I don't really want to accuse her of cowardice because I completely understand the sort of pressure that she would have been under, mm -hmm. not only, you know, from the deranged people attacking her, but also yeah, from PR people, the PR yeah, people's record label, mm -hmm. people with the purse strings, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. No, and it does seem like, if you think about this particular scandal, if you think about your man Winston Marshall getting kicked out of Mumford Sons <laughs> because he liked a book by a conservative author, mm. um, it feels like you are just not allowed to be in the mainstream music industry now if you happen to hold gender-critical views, mildly conservative views, if you happen just to believe. On this issue is, is a good example, along with the vast majority of people in this country in America and elsewhere, that it's a terrible idea to be subjecting children to unevidenced and potentially very, very dangerous therapies. That's the thing about her comments is that they were correct. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not as if that we're being right in any kind of sense is your past to freedom of speech or not. But on this, she's absolutely correct. She's correct on the facts. Yeah. In terms of puberty blockers, you know, the cast review in this country, um, the interim cast review pointing out that they were just... There was there was no evidence as to their kind of safety in the in the long term. The NHS has recently, I think, limited it only where children are concerned to clinical trials. Yeah. The Nordic countries have rode back on these sorts of treatments because of the fact that they seem to put children on an irreversible pathway to towards cross sex hormones. What that can mean is a lifelong of pain, regrets, um, st sterility, mm. and so the person who's standing up with what is both the kind of evidence-based view, if you like, and also I think the morally unimpeachable view that what we have been subjecting confused young people to, often autistic, often struggling with their sexuality, is both wrong and morally, morally abhorrent. Is yeah. the person who's handed out of society. There's no better example of how topsy-turvy and upside-down the kind of cultural elites are than in, than a case like this, I think. The person who's standing up and saying we shouldn't sterilize confused kids, yeah. as all these experts have been saying, is the witch. How did that happen? It, 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 you're right. I mean, it should be the people who are pushing the kids to be sterilised. So you should be the ones facing the opprobrium. I mean, I don't want them to be cancelled. They should absolutely be able to say their view. But you think that's where the anger should be directed at, Paul? Yeah, I mean, I, I just what makes me laugh is is the, the the same people who are so quick to say, you know, we must follow the science when it comes mm. to to COVID, to masks, to lockdown, to the environment, climate change. 
um, you know, we, we, we have to follow the science. All of a sudden, when it comes to this issue, mm. um, they kind of say, well, you know, don't, don't come up with mm. scientific arguments. We're not really interested. You've got to be kind. Yeah. You know, so they elevate feelings over facts when, when it, in any other debate, they wouldn't do that. Um, and I, I just think that why, why should women continually have to put up with their identity, identity being appropriated in a way that we would never stand for for any other identity you know they we we wouldn't but when it comes to women we say they're fair game but i, I also sense that um they're not going to be defeated the, the gender critical movement i think has got so much confidence in it. yeah and three or four years ago i think people were dipping their toe in the water very tentatively because they were they were worried about getting their head shot off if i can mix my metaphors um but nowadays i think because there is that swell um, and, you know, people are prepared to take to the barricades over it. I think that's given people confidence. And when you see some of the the, the passion and, and the people involved in defending women's sex-based rights, um, then you think they're not going to be beaten. Um, you know, it may take a while um, and you occasionally lose the odd battle, but they're not going to be beaten uh, and, you know, full, full power to them because I think they're doing everybody, women and girls uh, across society, they're doing a great service to these campaigners. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.